0: he went down with them and stood on a level place. A large cloud of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people who all tried to touch him because the power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has served you. Go in peace. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They're words from our gospel reading from today, and if you've looked at the bulletin or if I've had a chance to talk to you before the service, um, Kim Martin, who we prayed for, who's on hospice last week, passed away this morning. Uh, uh, Lauren called me at 7, her husband at 7 this morning, And mentioned that she had passed away peacefully in her sleep, um, that she was surrounded by her daughters and loved ones, that they had been caring for her in these last days, and so they are those who who mourn, Um, and so this, you know, you prepare for your sermon or these things, and then these things happen, and so as we go through the text, as we listen to the text, it's it's that that... um, comes to the foreground as well. It's not the only thing in our mind this morning, but the, but as we listen to this portion of Luke, um, what's called the Sermon on the Plain, what does it mean to hear in the midst of mourning? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And as this happens, we um, <laughs> talked about death a couple sermon series back, but the Death is this last great enemy of God. It's the one that's finally conquered um, in Jesus' resurrection, and we await its extinguishment in the the age to come, Um, the life everlasting, as we say in the creed. It's this last thing, Um, and yet it uh, it still deals in the world um, in many ways. Um, and yet, there's, there's psalms um, in words in Scripture like, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful ones. Um, we think of Kim, um, if you're not familiar with it. Um, Lauren was the previous pastor um, here, and Kim was the pastor's wife then, which is its own sort of job, if you're not familiar with that, um, for, the la- for about, I think, 22 years. Is that right, Shelley? Um, so to say, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the passing of his faithful ones. Um, it's a precious thing that that, um, for God, that he can see that, uh, again, as we await that sort of final extinguishment, that final enemy being destroyed. So that's the, the non-planned introduction to today's sermon what I wanted to start with, um, but I think is relevant to this, is the end of this Sermon on the Plain, um, where Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and put them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house, who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck, and the house could, but the house could not shake because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. The moment that the torrent struck, that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. There's truth in that teaching there that becomes relevant for us today. Both the wise man and the foolish man um, have storms that come. There's a myth about the Christian life. I don't think it's as relevant here, um, but that there are no storms once you, once you move into this place. But what Jesus says is the one who hears his words and puts them into practice is like the one whom when the storm came, when the floods came, both the wise and the foolish builder in Matthew's language here Storms come for both of them. So what does it mean that in this sermon on the plain, it seems as if Jesus is giving instruction to build a house that can withstand storms, to build um, a place that is uh, able to withstand the floods and the torrents of the world, to have us here all of this Sermon on the Plain, which takes up the rest of chapter five to say that this is the way in which the disciples, Luke um, very clearly displays Jesus as speaking to the disciples here to hear that this is how you shall build your house so that when the storms come, what does it say? Uh, The torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. When terrible things happen, when storms happen, there are times in which our houses are built and so that they collapse. Um, and that's not to say that life <laughs> life is hard. Um, there, there's a truth there that that we think we can build wisely these houses. Sometimes, despite our best attempts, they do collapse. But as we hear about suffering as we hear about uh, the death of the faithful. I think it's worth hearing the instructions that Jesus gives for us as this way of saying, how do we build houses that can remain in the midst of storms? This is launching off from that text quite a bit, but if you build your house so that it can withstand storms, guess what? You can provide shelter to others whom houses collapse during the storm. You hear what Christ is instructing. And this way, I think, of, of living in the world that is fully engaged with its realities. If your house is still standing, it can be a house for others. It can be a respite for others. And, and I don't think it's, it's unclear that the church is meant to be one of these houses where we dig down and build on the foundation in a different way. My goal for this Sunday was just to to focus on the Beatitudes today, these first ones. We're mostly familiar with the Beatitudes from Matthew's Gospel. Um, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Luke um, cuts out many of the spiritual interpretations of this. It's blessed are the poor, uh, blessed are you who hunger, instead of hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, blessed are you who weep, and blessed are people. Blessed are you when people hate you. Um, that's sort of the way in which Luke goes about this. Before we get started too far, this is the copy of Luke that's available by the door. You're welcome to take one with you, read through it, um, and get to know um, Luke's portrait of who Jesus is. Um, to see and to hear sort of how Luke is portraying that. And and you'll find, for instance, with this section, you'll you'll hear blessed are the poor, and you'll be like, all right, I'm gamed up for the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll find out that the Sermon on the pl- uh, Plain is a fraction of the length of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, you're like, where's the rest of it? And incidentally, some of the other teachings that are in the Sermon on the Mount do show up in other places in Luke's gospel. For instance, Luke has his own version of the Lord's Prayer, although it is there it is remarkably more similar to the one in the Sermon on the Mount um, than, than this Sermon on the Plain. Um, so yeah, the, we'll focus on the Beatitudes for today, which have their own struggle in preaching on them. First off, a small group this week, we were talking house church we read through them twice, and we said, okay, what are people hearing? And, and two people, I think, at least said, I don't like the Beatitudes. We all judge them harshly and cast them out. No. Um, uh, because there's this sort of, you know, challenge in them. Blessed are you poor. Blessed are you hunger. Blessed, like, are all the comforts of my life a judgment upon me? And Luke, notably, as Katie read for us, um, adds the woes as well. Um, Luke has this sort of binary thinking, which is not popular in the modern world. Um, And yet what we heard, Jack read from us Psalm 1, blessed is the man um, uh, who walks in the ways of the Lord, and then woe to the one who walks in the other paths. That's part of Psalm 1, this intro to the Psalter, or what Emily read to us from the book of Jeremiah. Still, that very black and white thinking, Um, we, incidentally, do not like black and white thinking very much. We prefer to see in a world of gray. Um, And scripture, I think, has tendencies where it complicates things. It doesn't entirely think that the world is black and white all the time, although, you know, blessed are those who walk in the light and the others walk in darkness. You don't get much um, more direct than that. But I think scripture's darkness blessed are those, woe to those, um, is meant to draw us into reality as much more clear than we think it is. Sometimes we want to see gray. We want it to be more complicated because it protects us in some ways or protects others, Um, protects the way in which we might have to confront others in their own disrepair, but certainly it, it also confronts the way in which we might have to uh, confront ourselves in our own disrepair. Much easier to say, well, it's all a bit of a mix. Um, there's a well-known pastor's book called *Seeing Gray in a World of Black and White*, and I didn't buy it. Um, I used to work at a bookstore, but I was always like, the, the Bible is kind of this world of black and white. Like it's it's trying to protect. Uh, And the book, obviously, was written about contemporary politics and this, that, and the other. Um, And so he's trying to guide his congregation faithfully. But it is scripture that sort of sees the world in black and white often. Blessed are you. Woe to you. Before we go into the scriptures, just I wanted to hit this quote from last week that says, I don't believe that if God intends for a new world to be spared, he'll have to lead a few select people into the wilderness to start things over again. I think that's what he began in Moses and the children of Israel left Egypt continues today in the church and is meant to continue that way. And I believe this is all accomplished in the patience of Christ and history, not with select people, but with very ordinary Ones, as ordinary as the vacillating children of Israel and the fishermen of the apostles. The reason why I wanted to, to bring that quote back up is to say that if we are people who are to build houses, to be led into the wilderness, it is the ordinary ones who are called into that. It's not a select few. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in writing about the blessed are the poor, notes that there's a a Catholic interpretation that often wants to project the poor onto monasteries and monks to say, blessed are those. And Bonhoeffer says, Christ will have none of that, Um, that you can't sort of shield this off to one way, but it's for the ordinary people, the church, to begin to live and to body these things. And so these Beatitudes, I think, are a way of bringing us into reality in a different way. Of us, um, Bishop Father Barron says that in the Beatitudes, we hear possibly what it might be to live from the center, to live near Christ, to have a vision sort of placed in the center of things. And it's a a vision that runs counter to the ways of the world in many ways. Now, before I get started, uh, really, I think I've said that three times, so we are started. (laughs) We're in the middle, maybe. Uh, Don't write that down. Um, What was I saying? The... um, There's various interpretations to the Beatitudes, many interpretations to the Beatitudes, what i was saying. So for instance, if you were to compare today's sermon perhaps to what I preached when we walked through the Sermon on the Mount a couple years ago, it may be different. I didn't listen to it before today because they are different texts in a lot of ways. But the point being is that if you start to study the Beatitudes, you'll find out that there are sort of a thousand different ways to look at it. And so as I sort of preach and share this one way of looking at it. It's for you to wrestle with it, too, and to figure out your own ways of living into this challenging text. Um, It is there Christ proclaims. Now, Christ, in Luke's gospel, it says he's been teaching and healing often, and so we've seen, um, we saw some of his confrontations in Sabbath time. He's... fronting people over healing on the wrong day of the week in a lot of ways, and people are coming to, to healing and to hear his teaching. But Luke, for us, has not quite displayed his teaching yet. And so it's at this moment that Jesus comes from the down, down off the mountain and stood in a level level place. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus gives the Sermon from the Mount— And here, Luke gives it from a level place. And there's this way, if you were um, viewing Scripture as sort of this hyperlinked thing, that this sounds like Moses coming down from the mountain and sharing with the people of Israel what God has told him there. And so Jesus is one Moses-like who comes down the mountain and shares with the people. Luke notes that he's surrounded by a large crowd of his disciples. Previous scene, he proclaimed the twelve apostles. So if you're looking at what the crowd that Jesus is sharing this with is first um, the apostles that he has proclaimed, and then a large crowd of his disciples was there, and then people. Luke has this way of sort of projecting people into this, and they're always sort of hearing and accepting or hearing and, and being rejecting. And so there's this crowd that is sort of witnessing what Jesus is going to say to his disciples says that they came from all over Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Tyre and Sidon, which is these two enemies of Israel as well. Luke, as we've talked about, has a second part of his book, the book of Acts, in which this mission of reaching the Gentiles, of reaching those formerly on the outside, is fulfilled. And so people from these two cities who are ritually enemies come, and they come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by imp- Pure pure spirits were cured, and all the people tried to touch him because the power was coming out from him and healing them all. At this moment, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, it's important to hear that, that Jesus looks at his disciples and says, this is in some sense a constitution for the church, who are the people of God, N.T. Wright says, um, as Jesus in the previous scene had picked 12 apostles, um, which he says is akin to picking 11 people, which means you're going to play football. He says he picks a future Israel. Uh, He picks 12. You would see that if, if you were reading this sort of as a faithful Jew. And then he then gives them the plan for which they then shall live. He writes, says he draws up a play, which I thought was clever, but maybe too clever. <laughs> I was like, I don't think it works that way. Um, but point being is he's got this way of living into this thing here, and he begins with these sayings that appear in, in contradiction. They're they're actually the blessings and the woes are opposites. So you have blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Each of these will line up these blessings and woes. What Jesus does is saying, Blessed are you who are poor, looking at the disciples. Again, um, Matthew will add the phrase, in spirit. Luke says, blessed are you who are poor. Now, there's a question that many people ask. Is Luke looking at this economically and Matthew looking at it theologically or spiritually? Is there a spiritual poverty? Um, One commentator this week pointed out that's pretty much a modern conundrum. The Greek word, going back to the Hebrew word that that Jesus is using in his here, always has both a spiritual and sort of an economic component to it. They are not um, separate things. But what it means in that way with both is that those who have no other recourse rely on God. Those who can be poor, poor in spirit or poor economically or poor, which, which Luke's word means both, are those who rely on on the grace and the goodness of God to survive in life. And this is interesting. Both these are the more already received ones. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those, for they shall be comforted. That's future. Here, Luke says, Blessed are you, who are poor, for yours already is the kingdom of God. It's almost as in being unable to shield yourself from the world with riches or with um, protection or with um, maybe theology to some degrees, being poor in that spot, you find yourself already in communion with the kingdom of God. The future reality will come in its fullness, but it certainly is present right now among those who are poor, for Jesus and Luke's gospel. And to be clear, this is uh, available to us as we build our houses in the world. To be economically poor is one thing to have this. To be the righteous poor is sort of what Israel sort of begins to slot these people in as. But it's available to us to live into the kingdom in our poverty as well. It's not an earned thing, but it is something that Christ proclaims too. He doesn't say, blessed are you who are making yourselves poor. It's a reality that's already present. Blessed are you who are poor, my disciples. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. When I was in college, this is an aside note, um, but there was this uh, fight among sort of feminism at the time. Uh, Feminism has changed several times in my life, but it was interesting because back then there was this notion that like Hillary Clinton might be president. This was a long time ago. Um, And people would say, yeah, but she would have to govern as a man. But if she went that far, if she achieved that sort of power, she would in some sense be a figurative male. And that's the way that the feminists that I knew in college thought of CEOs and those in power, right? And what shifted by the time I was in seminary was this idea of that all of the poor, all of the disadvantaged, deserve the right to be on top. Now, I'm not going to say they don't deserve the right to be on top, but early on there was this idea in which there is a way of being on the bottom that gives you different ways of seeing and acting and being in the world. And so what we've done is we've shifted, and I think this has to do with some of our active sort of thoughts about power, is that everyone should have the right, I joke, this is a joke, everybody should have the right to be as miserable as a white male. Because we're not doing that well. But everybody should have the right to strive, to seek, to push themselves all the way up to the top, to abandon their family for career, to, to do all these things, to become an NFL head coach, to do all these things, Uh, to be as empty as we are. Um, Again, that's a joke. Um, And I say, clearly, in our modern world, it is good that everybody has the right to do that. But is it good? Is it what we need? Because there was a a feminist scholar, Amy Laura Hall, who who would write about the ways in which... um, Women and femininity, in the ways in which they learned to live in the world, not in the halls of power, not as the rich, who already received their comfort, might teach others to live in the world. There are different mechanisms for surviving and living and breathing and caring that were embodied with those who are often dispossessed. And our solution today is to make them not dispossessed, which is a good solution, but then we push them into, woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. I think one of the reasons why we want to solve that is because it's often a judgment upon us. It makes me feel better that everybody can have a car payment because then everybody's just like me. (laughs) It's uh, more money, more problems, right, Kendall? This is the, it makes me feel better that everybody can have the same um, sort of freedom of choices after what shall I binge watch tonight on Netflix? Because if there are people who don't have that, it's a judgment upon me. And so instead of adjusting my vision, of learning and embodying in those places, mm-hmm. of humbling myself, to find out what life might be like if it's not just a striving to be rich, for you can already receive your comfort. Oftentimes, I think we're tempted to just say, let's solve the problem. Again, these are good things to solve in some ways. I'm aware I'm making myself a fool in a lot of what I'm saying right now. You can write me a letter afterwards about it, an email. Um, But I think that's a big challenge in the modern world is to hear what does it mean to live a less protected life? And how might I learn that from people who have gone without it? Without saying, you know what? You should be able to live not dependent on God so that the kingdom is yours today. You need to receive your comfort now like I have as well. I'll tell you, if we uproot all of the people, who can live in that way. I've, I've used this story before, but Dallas Willard used to say that Tolstoy's life was saved among working with the poor. And he says, we don't have poor like that anymore because they all have cable. Um, and what he means to say is that these, these people were able to, to show him subsistence and living and care and relationship to one another as he worked the fields with them. And what Willard is saying, because we've so um, tried to destroy everybody's imagination, mine first, then everybody else's, We've ruined what we might learn from one another. So how is it we begin to to find ourselves in these ways? And I think there's a, a truth that there are poor, Matthew's way, poor in spirit, that live into that reality that we can go and learn from. We can be near to. And if we can deal with our discomfort, We can be with them without trying to solve all their problems. I notice you have an iPhone 4. Would you like an iPhone 12? Um, This is the type of stuff that happens, though. I mean, it's funny, but it is the reality that happens when we get amongst those who are poor because our discomfort makes them want them to be like us. And I think that there's a danger there because we'll never learn what it means to be and trust in God in a different way. Henry Nouwen had this way of saying, we all know the path of upward mobility, but we need witnesses to know the path of downward mobility. We all know that we should strive after riches so that we can have our comfort now. But woe to you who have received your comfort already. I'm not rushing to live into that vulnerability myself. Um, but it is there for us. You could build your house in a way that says, I need my comfort now. Or you could build your house in a way that says, blessed am I who knows that the kingdom is here among me without the protections, without the shelters, without the things that I can do to drive myself to receive my comfort now. And in our 21st century world of consumerism, it didn't, wouldn't take long for me to do an inventory of the ways in which I can seek my comfort like on Amazon after the service is over. Um, it's not, in the ancient world, finding your comfort might have been a little bit more work than that. Um, but we can absolve ourselves into TikTok or YouTube. We can find our comfort very often in fleeing from reality through purchasing or um, taking on content or moving into these other spheres, not attentive to it. I think riches has that way of destroying us from the attentiveness to reality. So Blessed are the poor, for yours now, not in the future, is the kingdom of heaven. This is what Paul says of those people, the apostles, having nothing yet possessing all things. Having nothing yet possessing all things. The next one, uh, blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Woe to you who are well-fell now, for you shall go hungry. I don't know if you've ever been to a nice supper party, and you didn't know it was going to be nice, and you ate uh, two chalupas and one crunch wrap Supreme on the way, and now you are there at the great feast, and you wonder, why did I fill myself then when I know that there were, well, that there was a feast coming later. Jesus, in Luke's gospel, is often said, is either going to a meal, leaving a meal, or at a meal. He's preparing us for this great banquet in the fullness of time, the supper of the Lamb. And we have this choice to be wed- fed, well-fed now, but to have no appetite for what's being offered to us. Um. Again, these are not things we earn in any way, but Christ is just proclaiming the reality that blessed are those who hunger. And Matthew will say in thirst for um, righteousness' sake, which is um, related if you were to say how does hunger play out in the Old Testament, which Jesus is obviously leading to. There's both hunger that's physical and there's hunger for what God is going to do in the world. Blessed are those who are hungry now for what God will do in the world. For in that day, in the future day, you will be well satisfied. Woe to you, filling yourself now. For on that day, you will have no appetite. For on that day, you will go hungry. Again, Jesus is blessing his disciples here. This is not a social program. It's to say this is the reality of the kingdom he is proclaiming. Sorry, it wasn't actually the middle when I said it, so we're moving faster now. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. There's an awakeness to the world. Um, There's a reality to the world that if you were to look at it, The news of the suffering in our community, the news of the suffering in the Ukraine or in Israel and Palestine or all the places throughout the world, that if you are awake to what people are going through, you will weep now. If we hear about the loss that that Lauren and his daughters are going through, it would be wise for us to weep now. We're in touch with reality. Weeping oftentimes is the proper response. The laughing um, in the Old Testament and the New has this way of sort of scoffing at the way in which the world is hurting people. But woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. There's a lot to think of in that. One of the things that, that draws to me about why woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep, because you might see in that future day the ways in which you were not attentive to the ways in which the world was um, causing mourning. To be full and to be rich and to have all the comforts and to in that future day to hear and to see the ways in which things were trampled in another world, in your world, <laughs> but the one in which you ignored, might cause your own mourning and weeping at that time for those, the church, to be able to sow tears in the words of the psalm so that they touch the ground. is to be touched with reality so that we weep with those who weep because we know the day of healing in which laughter is coming. Blessed are those. And blessed are you when people hate you when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. And woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestor ancestors treated false prophets. This is every high schooler's worst nightmare. Blessed are you when everybody makes fun of you. Um, in the first century, the church was going through its own type of persecution, too. And blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Now, it's important to remember that because of the Son of Man, um, I often, in college, um, people would go to like a class and just want to debate the professor, and everybody'd be like, chill out, man. And they'd be like, no, I'm being persecuted for righteousness' sake. And it was like, oh, you're being persecuted because you're a pain. Um, it's not for his sake that your persecution is coming. It's because you're just trying to make it come. Um, And woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. There's this way in which you are called to build your house, to move into reality with the knowledge that to be this person is to have people malign you, to have people turn against you. The church, I think, in North America went through a period where there were positive associations with saying I'm a Christian. Um, But I think and I believe that we're moving towards an era where that might not be the case anymore. And by the way, I should be clear that like, saying you're a Christian, I'm not saying that that meant authentically living as one. I think that might always lead to persecution, but there was certainly an era in which if you said it, things might come your way. But today we live we're moving, I think, to a period where even to say it is to invite persecution, is to invite anger and insult, and to have your name rejected as evil. It's for this teaching to strengthen us in that. Because woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets how much we strive to have everyone speak well of us. Not knowing that that's the ways in which you can be with the world, which is false. To try and to have everyone speak well of you is to falsify reality in some ways. Because if we know these teachings, if we know this way, if we are following this one, there's truthfulness there. that which we are called to live into. So, how is it we will build our houses hearing from Christ today? The teachings that follow this are about love of enemy. You can go through life just trying to keep score on everyone, um, the other teaching that follows this is uh, uh, judging others. You know, are you going to go through life thinking you are the judge? Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Christ, through his teaching, frees us, I think, into this non-anxious way of living through life that's not guarded, that's not entirely protected, that's not entirely obsessed with whatever the news is talking about but is face-to-face with reality in a way that goes beyond and points to the depths at which Christ knows because he came to us from the Father and is full of the power of the Spirit. So he blesses his disciples into that reality. Let us pray. God, we have heard your blessings upon your people. For the poor, blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are those who are persecuted and insulted. These are the people you have gathered around you. Call us to live into that reality through the power of your Spirit. Allow us to live disarmed lives that we may find ourselves connected to you in a way that shows forth our poverty, learning from those who experience it as well, that we may find ourselves drawn into hunger for the righteousness that is to come, but also awaiting that future meal in which you will feed all and we can partake joyfully. Blessed are we as we weep for that which surrounds us. For on that day you will fill us with laughter, knowing the fullness of all things. Blessed are we when we are persecuted. For it is for your Son's sake and that we join him in that. We ask this in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.